Hi, I'm John Niehaus, Director of Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors. I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of the NAFI More Right Rudder Podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. And today, I've got a special guest, Randall Williams. He is a pilot, DPE, and sailor. Um, this guy has had adventures all over the world. I've followed him on social media and uh, just always interested to see where he is and what he's doing. And one of the reasons why we decided to uh, join up today was because we were talking about the correlation between the aviation world, the nautical world, and instructors for both. And I thought it'd be a, a really cool episode, and and Randall's the perfect guy to talk to. So, Randall, Gosh. welcome. Thanks. That's super fun. I have just returned from six months of living on my boat to check ride land. So I'm just I'm just back. And uh, <laughs> it's super fun that this worked out and the schedule is uh, yeah, this and that our, our paths aligned. So absolutely. So yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you live in Maine. So is your boat in Maine right now? The boat is in Guatemala. So oh um, not so much warm in Maine during the winter. And so um, I've been for the past, let's call it seven, eight years, um, making laps around the Carib Caribbean. And so um, uh, multiple boats, had one boat, sold a boat, all that good stuff. But right now the boat is um, in deepest Guatemala up the, the Rio Dulce, which is protected from hurricanes. And it's a freshwater, freshwater river and big lake that's up there with a bunch of marinas in it. And that's kind of a spot where a lot of people end up for, uh, for hurricane season. So um so now while the summer goes past and it's sweltering hot down there i'm back in maine i'm giving check rides doing the occasional instruction you know it's what's so interesting about it is as i as i keep digging into the the dpe work i realize that really examiners are just we're just instructors it's like we're just people too who got this extra gig from the faa because we jumped through a bunch of hoops and we're decent at instructing and so uh it's fun to like when I can instruct a little bit, I like to, I like to do it still. So I still have some clients that I instruct for, but mostly it's just all check rides all the time. I'll do probably 150 rides this summer, but, and then I sail around in the winter. That's incredible. That's incredible. So let's, uh, let's first start with your aviation background. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about, uh, your accomplishments aviation wise and how that led to becoming an examiner. Oh, gosh. So I basically, I always thought I wanted to fly. And then my dear friend, Michael, died way too early. And I, he spent his last several years jumping out of planes before dying of cancer. And I realized that if I wanted to fly, now was the time. And so I, I got into it. Um, and then I just started flying more and flying more. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I guess I have to get a commercial rating now. And oh, gosh, I guess I'm gonna have to be an instructor. And you know, and then I ended up buying an airplane and ended up running a, a flight club for a while and had a three airplanes and then sold all that. And um, it was right about the time that I was like, well, maybe, maybe I just want to go sail across the Pacific that I was like, well, maybe I also want to fly jets. So I put a couple applications in and I literally had gotten no bites back and I'm like, that's okay. Nobody loves me. I'm just going to go fly. And then it was literally that day after I had made the decision not to go be a commercial pilot um, and burn jet a that uh, I got a call. And so flew a private jet for a while and then went off to a 121 carrier, flew the 7576 and decided that that schedule really didn't fit my lifestyle either. And so I left the 121, 135 world and I am back to burning avgas and 
piston singles and twins. So I'm enjoying the examining and enjoying the schedule and the time off and the community. It's really more community support, you know, because the community all over the country, we just, we need examiners. We need to keep that pipeline flowing. And uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm excited to be part of that chain and part of the community and, you know, back in Maine and here to enjoy it rather than, you know, zipping off across time zones. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find it interesting though your your statements of oh do I want to become a commercial pilot or do I just want to I don't know maybe sail across the ocean <laughs> as if that's just a normal day to day decision that people make. Yeah, <laughs> well, those of us without families, if you can keep your expenses low, you can kind of do whatever you want, right? I mean, if you've got if a cell phone bill is your biggest expense and you know the occasional the occasional like hospital visit, it's like well let's let's go have an adventure. So that's kind of what I've been doing for, you know, probably eight or 10 years now and um, just living cheaply. But I'm super curious to hear what happens for you in your new gig with relation to your family. Like, will you be away too much? Will it work? Like, you know, because that's a rough that's a rough balance. It can be. It can be. Yeah. Uh, he's referring to I'm supposed to go to uh, Gulfstream training soon and uh, I'm excited about it. I'm, you know, anytime you get a type rating, it's not particularly an exciting month. It's, it's three weeks of just intense fire hose and, and not seeing the sun, but it's always a great feeling when it's done. And, uh, and I do think that the adventures are going to be good. We, uh, we fly all across the world and, um, primarily a couple destinations in Europe, a couple destinations in, in Asia and also South America. So it's, it's kind of exciting for me. John. So I think this is, if I'm counting right, this is like your fourth type rating or so. Yeah. I, I, yep. I wonder if as, as a Good flight guess. instructor, did you build some, did you build some hard skills to help you like drink from the fire hose? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's, you learn how to learn is really kind of what I figured out. It's it's mm -hmm. less about being, you know, uh, smart. It's less about being, you know, able to keep up per se, but it's more about figuring out how to retain that message because if you can help someone else retain it, you can sort of figure out how to do it yourself. Um, and so, you know, I figured out that for me, it's, it's blunt force trauma. It's I need to sit there. <laughs> And I need to stare at it and I need to write it down. And I mean, I literally have a worksheet where one of my coworkers did all the limitations for the airplane. And I, I he did like a little like cheat sheet. I blanked it out and I printed about 50 copies of it. And like every day I just do like two of them. And eventually over the course of a month, I might remember 75%. Who knows? Yeah. My so. friend Adam just got out of G4 training. He's like, the systems. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's exciting for me, and and uh, you know, it's we'll see we'll see what happens, but uh, it's again, it'll be good when it's over. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, it, yeah. the instructor thing also the other the other thing comes the thing that comes from it in this particular capacity is you sort of learn to trust the process. Because having been an instructor and having asked my own students to sort of trust me, this picture is going to come together. Mm -hmm. You will mm -hmm. get there. I'm not going to mm -hmm. let you fail unless, you know, mm -hmm. something happens that I can't mm -hmm. control, but I'll mm -hmm. get you there. And mm -hmm. you're staring down the the barrel of this giant elephant of an airplane and going, I'm halfway through and I don't understand it. And they just sit there and go, in another week and a half, you will. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. I had a, I had a, um, a student come to me one time because he was applying for a job that required that he have um, a CFI, double I, MEI. And he was already a CFI, but he needed to add on an instrument instructor and a multi-engine instructor within a week. And he flew across the country and we had three solid days in the middle of that week of bad weather here in Maine. Mm. And it was such hard work and I was totally focused on working with him. And at the end of that week, it was, it was Friday morning. We're on our way to the check ride. Somebody had taken the single engine plane down to the airport where we were going. We were getting in the Aztec and the fuel pump went. And, um, he looks at me and he's like, what are the odds that this check ride's going to happen today? And I'm like, it is totally going to happen today. I had a great relationship with the maintenance guy. And literally I got the IA on the phone. I walked into the building. The previous owner of the plane had the pump right there. Like the IA came over and installed it. And we were half an hour late for the check ride and practiced wow. on our way down. Yeah. And that was, and, and the same thing, like in typewriting, I, the same deal, the middle of that training on the challenger, I was like, how am i going to get this and sure enough on check ride day like it was all right there so yeah that is definitely a muscle that we learn yeah yeah so it, it it definitely helps i i i still say and anybody who's listened to this podcast has heard me say this probably a dozen times now but uh when i did go to the airlines they made us all raise our hand and say hey you know how many of you have been instructors before and and they came out and actually said, based on the airline statistics, that the people that run through the process who have been instructors, especially were recently using their instructor certificate, actually tended to do better. Um, and uh, I always thought that was incredible. Yeah, I love instructing. And one of the things I realized early on is that what I loved most about it was being a mentor and support for those people who came to me. And so I was clear almost throughout the entire time that I was actively teaching that I was going to be their biggest aviation support. And probably a few dozen of them still reach out occasionally and some even more frequently. Yeah. And I just love, I, I love that piece of I'm here to support you. And so the, the examiner stuff has been the same way. Like I'm an instructor who's volunteered to the FAA to help the FAA with this process of certificating pilots and making sure that like the end of the chain is all clean, that when an instructor signs somebody off, they're really ready to go. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, we're just sort of helping pilots, mentoring pilots. And, and it, it's fun because it takes the anonymity away from, you know, I'm the FAA and I'm here to get to, you know, to, to find the holes and fail you. Like, no, I'm here to make sure you come home safely after every flight. And if I feel like there's a chance you're not going to do that, you don't want to get in that plane either, but I'm on your team. So it's been, it feels like an extension of the instructor role, even though the hardest part of the job is that you can't instruct. So like yeah. you're sitting there asking questions that you know the answer to, and you're watching them do stuff and you're just sitting on your hands going, yep, 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 cool. And then occasionally like you have these beautiful moments of watching them shine. I remember I remember there was one applicant who came to me uh, for a commercial ride. It was the first commercial ride I'd done in a Cessna 180. And I've got a bunch of 180 time. Um, but on his power off, on his power off 180, he killed the power and he just floated forever. And I'm like, God, he is never going to make that landing spot. And I'm just sitting on my hands and he, he brought it in so tight 
And at the last minute, like 50 feet, he just slipped a tiny little bit, brought it back. And he said it exactly, exactly on the spot we had named. And I just started laughing. I mean, it's just so fun. So yeah, the, the instructor, the instructor stuff never goes away. Yeah. Well, my, one of my favorite things that I did, and I didn't get to do it for all that long. I think I did it for maybe a year and a half to two years, but I was a uh, check instructor, a training instructor on the Learjet in my previous position. So I got to train all of our new hires and I got to do our upgrade candidates and boy, was that fun. It was a 45, uh, right? It was a 45 and a 75. Yeah. 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 And it's funny because, you know, you fall into that role quickly again. My, my favorite thing when I was doing primary instruction was helping with students that, you know, it took a little bit longer. I don't want to say they struggled always, but, you know, sometimes that too. Um, and and I felt like I always related to that because I struggled. You know, I wasn't the the one that picked it up on the first go. I had friends that were that people, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, I was never that person. So it, yeah. for me, you know, I tended to lag a little bit behind and you catch up eventually. But I find that pilots who struggled tend to be the best instructors because they mm. understand what it's like to struggle. And um, so taking that into the Lear world, I mean, I was training a lot of pilots that this was their first jet. You know, they passed their type rating, yeah. but this was their first yeah. jet. Yeah. No auto throttles. Yeah, we had yep. an autopilot, but you had yep. to manually do the rest of that stuff. Yep. And um, <laughs> I remember there was one day where I had one pilot who was really struggling. And I knew just from general, I mean, all of the stuff that you teach in private and commercial translates into a jet. And when somebody has struggle scan, there's it when they when you know that their scan is messed up. Yeah. You do the exact same things. So, yeah. you know, I looked yeah. at him and I said, all right, here's the deal. You know, we're going to do, we're going to, everything's legal. So I'm going to preface that by saying I didn't do anything. I shouldn't have, yeah. but we're going to hand fly and we're going to turn the flight director off and you're going <laughs> to, you're going to fly a jet like you flew a 172 and you're going to use your eyes because yeah. the only way I'm going to get you to, to use your eyes and to scan oh, properly is if I take I away the it. thing that's keeping you from doing it. Oh, I love it. And I called it scan boot camp. Yeah. And uh, I came back and our uh, director of training, he he walked up and he's like, Hey, how do you do? And I was like, Oh, you know, he struck. I knew he was struggling with this. We, we, we did that. And, you know, I forced him to, to fly raw data and he's like, you did what? <laughs> and at first I thought I was in trouble. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, I don't even know if I could do that. <laughs> he's like, you're really mean. <laughs> yeah. He had a swept wing Lear 45. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and the pilot yeah, came yeah. back with a big old smile on his face. He's like, that mm-hmm. was the best flight I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you realize you can fly the jet, you know, yep. we had in, 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 in this, you know, the seven, six sim, we had one instructor who, who would take us all the way back to basics like that. He's all right. All right. Show me 60 degree seat turns. Like, go ahead. You know, like, Whoa, Hey, look at this. You know, you, now you've got the energy to do all this stuff. He'd flame us out five miles from the airport at 300 knots. Be like, put it on the runway. And we put it on the runway. Like, so it was, yeah. Can't say I do yeah. that, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Right. You don't. But but he was pushing the envelope to show us like, this is an airplane. Just fly it. Yeah. So, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So, so you wanted to ask about sailboats. And and I am I got to say, I'm lit up around what pilots can teach sailboaters because the the correlations are so deep and so good. And because 
we need to be so safety conscious and so aware because we're working in three axes and because gravity, you know, there's so much more that you have to do, but it all applies. And I was just literally thinking the other day about briefing an approach, you know, cause I'm going into this, this river bar in Livingston and I have, you know, in Guatemala and it's this deep and here's my tidal range. Here's where the current's coming from and here's what the wind's doing and here's the speed we're going to do it at. And so literally I was briefing it the same way that I would brief an instrument approach and talking it through out loud and talking through the depth. Like, okay, now there's a foot under the keel. Okay. Now there's six inches under the keel. Okay. Well, here's a foot again. Like, okay, now we've passed the bar. Like, and I'm, I'm literally just calling it out to myself while I'm sailing in. So yeah, no, I think there are a ton of correlations. So how does it work? You know, when you start to learn to sail, what's that process look like? How long does it take? Is it the same kind of thing where you have a like training instructor and monitor hours or? <laughs> so here's, here's the thing I think you might not know about me is that I taught myself to sail by buying a 20 foot boat for $800 in Sweden and taking off for North Africa. As I wrote one a book does, about of it. Course. It was inc- as, as you do, hey, who doesn't do that? Yeah, I know it was incredibly naive. It was such a bad deal. Um, but I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And so I sort of, I, I, the aerodynamics of it, I sort of had to teach myself, but I went to a couple of sailing classes and I did a radio communication class. So I ended with a Swedish, um, uh, a Swedish recreational sailboat license, but I really had no idea how to sail upwind and I didn't really didn't know what I was doing. And I read all these books about people in little 20 foot boats and I just took off. And so I learned, and this is before I had learned to fly. And so I, I learned all these things like, okay, well, here's the wind and here's how we can use the sails. And I sort of started to figure it out, but it was really risky. Like at one point, you know, I, I, I made it out of the Baltic and I got into the North sea and, you know, at one point I had realized, well, okay, the tide's doing this and the wind's doing this. So that means I have to leave at 2 a.m. in order to get over there. So I had dead reckoning and all that stuff before I had, you know, before I came to do it as a, as a, a pilot and later an instructor. Um, so that dead reckoning stuff was like, oh, yeah, cool. I know this. And, you know, calculating, you know, calculating time and distance and drift and all that good stuff. So, yeah, it's a lot of correlations. So you mentioned that you don't think there's a lot that translates from sailing into aviation. Why do you say that? Well, in aviation, you've got to be so precise because the speeds are so much faster. I mean, you're, you're moving at Mach, you know, you're moving at 0.85 or you will be soon. Um, You know, and a sailboat's moving six knots, you know, and so, and the sailboat is in one plane you know, if your mast falls off and you no longer have lift, then it's kind of like you're having a bad day. I hope you didn't get hit by the mast. But if your wing falls off, you're done, right? So, so the the level of challenge and the level of the number of things you have to be on top of as a pilot is so much bigger than than in a sailboat. But in a sailboat, there's still a whole lot of things you have to be on top of relative to, you know, a kayaker or somebody who's driving a car and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you can buy a boat and take off in it and figure stuff out and probably not hurt yourself. As long as you're cautious, you cannot do the same in an airplane. Yeah. So better to get instruction. You know, if you're a pilot, you're already going to understand a whole bunch of stuff. So, and I recommend it. Sailing is super fun, you know? So, so what about the other way? What, uh, what 
do pilots bring to that equation when they start to go down the road of, of becoming sailors or, or even sailing instructors eventually? What is, what does that look like? I think it's, it's pre-flight, it's mechanical knowledge, it's aerodynamical, not aerodynamic knowledge of, um, you know, stalls and how an airfoil works and Bernoulli and all that good stuff. And we already understand about set and drift, you know, for current and wind and, you know, how we can, you know, center of effort and how we can make a boat move forward. That's the, that's where a pilot, you know, on a sailboat would be like, well, it works like an airplane works, right? Like this is an airplane wing, you know, cause you have these two sails that are effectively working like wings together, which is how the Arabs figured out going up wind, right? The Romans are like, well, throw up a bed sheet and see if the wind will push us someplace. And the Arabs are like, well, I don't know if we can turn this thing into a triangle, we can go upwind. And so the Arabs are like, cool, let's go up the Nile and trade with everybody. And so that's what they did. And the Romans are like, oh, well, that's cool. Let's do that. So <laughs> that's how the Arabs beat everybody to it. And, you know, sailing up the Nile and the old Dow rigs and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Huh. So for you, um, do you find yourself having to change your mindset when you jump between the two, kind of like you do when you have to go from one airplane to another and you're like, oh, how does this one work again? Does that happen when you jump from an airplane to a boat or do you sort of naturally find yourself settling into that role without having to think about it? I think I think it probably settles in. OK, what was really fun is while I was on my trip. So this this winter, I sailed from Miami to the Bahamas down to Jamaica, the Cayman Islands and then Honduras and Guatemala. So that was that was a big, beautiful trip. But in the middle, I was in the Cayman Islands and I reached out to see if I could go for a flight. And the guy was so excited that a U.S. flight instructor was on the island. He basically handed me the keys to his unregistered airplane and all of his students. He's like, here, go fly with my people. So he had all these U.S. students and he's like, go fly with them. And I'm like, OK, here we go. So um, so I did get to jump back into a 172 in the middle of sailing. And it was so fun to be back low and slow because, you know, I hadn't been doing a lot of GA before that because I'd been, you know, I'd been flying heavies. But uh, it was so sweet just to get back in a little four seater and, and teach and teach the basics. And yeah, I know I loved it. Hmm. So, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, unrelated when you have your boat left in Guatemala for a summertime, do I want to know the level of giant spiders and snakes that are probably on your airplane <laughs> right now? Like yeah. do, it's, how frightening it's, is that? it's in a marina and somebody's watching it and they're opening it every day. So it's, it's fine. And I'll go back and, you know, God willing, it'll be mold free. And, you know, so there'll be a little bit of cleaning and some projects to do, but then I'll, I'll start going again. So yeah, I'm starting the spiders to, are yeah. huge, right? they are, they're gigantic. Yeah. And there's snakes and all sorts of good stuff down there and there's iguanas. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> delicious. Yeah. So do you, um, do you, so you're, you're working part 91. So do you get to get out and enjoy some of the places you go or is it really just rest and then go back? It sort of depends. Um, I was, uh, I was very lucky on my first ocean crossing. It was about as nice as it could be. We, uh, we went, we went from Benton Harbor, Michigan to um, Milan, Italy. Okay. And so you, were we you stopped on the in Maine, actually. We, we did stop. The uh, no, no, we, uh, okay. we were above them. Okay. And, um, of course, of course. yeah, <laughs> of course, yeah. sorry. And no, 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 we were above them. Right. Right. Looking down on all the rest of the people. Um, 
<laughs> this was the Falcon. No, we... What? What's that? This was the Falcon. Yeah. Oh God, that's so great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and uh, and so we we were there for we in, we landed in the morning because um, most of our passengers like to time it so that they can sleep on the airplane, get off, go straight into meetings, and yeah, sure. Sure. Um, so we got there sort of eight a.m. Italy time, and we were there for I think three full days. And then came back. So it's like, you know, that's cool. The only thing that stinks is your family's not there, but that it was a, right. basically a full vacation of walking around yeah. the city and seeing things. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's super so. great. Did you ever was instructing for you a means to an end to get hours to be able to fly jets? It started out that way. Uh-huh. I, I, I can't, I, I think I've, I hope I haven't ever said anything otherwise. Otherwise, I'm contradicting myself. But uh, you know, it's it started out that way. I, I think that uh, I knew that it was something that I was going to do, um, and you know the the process of training for your CFI is enough for anyone to question how much do I like this um, because it's intense. I mean, it, it's still after, after type ratings and jets and everything else, my CFI ride is still the hardest check ride I've ever had. Um, wow. and, uh, wow. and so it's, it's intense. So you start to, you start to wonder like, am I cut out for this? Do I want to do this? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, again, going back to my previous statement, um, I found out how much I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I full disclosure, I actually found that out before I came to NAFI. Um, oh, that's fun. So it wasn't, you know, NAFI wasn't one of those things where it was like, oh, this is a job. I'll do it because it's, you know, something to do for a while. It is a job because it truly is something that I've I've been passionate about ever since I started doing the job. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's very easy to look at instructing as as, you know, a like you said, a sort of means to an end. But it's also extremely easy to fall in love with it while you do it. Mm-hmm. And um, like I said, I, I was a little bit of a hard case myself when I was going through training. Um, and I had really good instructors who, um, you know, kind of put me over their shoulders and and carried me across the finish line. And, and it was really rewarding for me to be able to have the same effect on people. I have one student and I am tickled pink because, um, you know, he went through a couple instructors and and struggled a little bit. And and I got paired up with him and worked with him for a little while. And and all of a sudden, he's through his private, through his instruments. Um, I helped him a little bit with his commercial. And now he's a NetJets pilot. And uh, you know, that's so fun. Yeah, that's just, so just fun. to be able to, to see this kid yeah. succeed and yeah. be every bit as good as I knew he was. Mm. Um you know, now he sees exactly what I saw and, and, you know, there's nothing mm. like that. That's so, really rewarding. It's hey, great. I've been, I've been thinking about, and I, and you and I've talked about this for a while. I've been thinking about putting in the paperwork to be a master CFI for a while. Yeah. Um, help me understand just like, I, 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 it's sort of rhetorical, but sort of not like, what is that? Why do that? Why, why would somebody want to do that to be a NAFI master CFI? You know, it's, it's a wonderful program. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the, the program's been going on since the nineties. Greg Brown was the, the very first master CFI ever accredited. 
And since then, there's been less than a thousand master CFIs. It's now 2023. So, you know, you do the math. Um, there's, it's a very small group of individuals and, you know, it, it requires a lot of work, not just to apply for the, the program, but the amount of activity that has to be done in a 24 calendar month window is incredible. Um, you know, and I preface anything that I say about the master CFI and it's not to necessarily say, oh, Hey, this person is better than a person who isn't a master CFI. What it does tell me about this person is that they are so incredibly dedicated to the craft that they operate in and the profession that they they are in that, you know, they put forth this level of activity, not just towards instructing in general, but you also see that they've bettered themselves, they've bettered their community. Um, and it's a great way to recognize somebody for that effort. So, um, you know, that's kind of a roundabout way of saying, why does somebody want to do it? Well, it, it really proves that you are in sort of a small community of instructors that go that level above and beyond what mm. a, a uh, I don't, average isn't the right word because that, you know, generalizes people, but the, the standard CFI mm -hmm. um, and, you know, what do they get out of it? Well, they, they really kind of get that recognition. And if I were uh, one of our board members, Aaron Dabney, who is um, not just a board member, but he started out as a master instructor, then became a one of our review panel because we have independent um, reviewers for the program. And now he's a board member. Um, and what he says is, you know, yes, the accreditation is sort of an award for the instructor, but he says it's actually for him, it's a challenge for him to be better and a challenge for him to make other instructors better. So really, you know, there's, there's all these things that you get and, you know, we try not to give prizes for the master instructor because that's not what it's about. Um, but it, it allows the community, it allows the students to understand how uh, active and, and how um searching for words here and and how just serious you are at giving your all to the profession and that shows um and it draws people in it draws business in it's nationally recognized the faa recognizes it yeah you know they have to uh make sure that uh you know when we design the program everything had to be approved through them um which is great because it's a feather in our cap it's also kind of one of those yeah. things where it's like i can't change it without their approval now so yeah. that yeah, becomes yeah. a whole nother conversation yeah. um but uh you know it's it's just a it's a wonderful program in the sense that we as NAFI get to see the amazing work that these people do and um you know i don't know if that answers your question or not but <laughs> it does and i feel inspired by it like it's yeah it, it feels like it turns up the heat on the simmering burner you know it really does thinking it's, about it for a while as yeah. pilots we like challenges and you yeah. know the master cfi is a challenge on both sides it's a challenge to get but then it's also a challenge to make you go okay I've gotten this. People are looking up to me even more than they already did. How do I now exceed expectations? And I think that you see within our master CFI community that, that uh, they all consistently do that. Um, and, mm -hmm. and it's great. You know, you, you see uh, guys like Aaron Dabney, um, you see uh, Sarah Rovner. She's a former master CFI. That's a mutual yeah. friend of ours. Yeah. Um, 
Jason Blair is a numerous time master. I mean, these, these individuals, they're out there, they're doing it, they're making a difference and and yeah. people know their name and, yeah. Yeah. you know, Naffy doesn't take credit for any of that. So please don't take this statement the wrong way, but we're privileged to have been a part of helping them get to the points that they've reached. You know, mm-hmm. it's a very small part, um, but we got to, you know, see them in their, their sort of, blooming status and and that's yeah. a, a really cool thing well you us. really you held up the bar right you're like well here you know here's this bar and they're like i got it i got it so yeah we um we did a podcast with sarah before we did um, and you put out gosh it was it was recently on the naffy facebook group that you said hey who's got some stories they'd like to share and and i wrote you a couple of blog entry stories that are coming out um, and you and I got into a sort of a conversation about how we survive training incidents and like mm-hmm. what happens. So do you have, do you have training incident stories to share? A few, a few. Surviving. You, know, you, you get, you get some of the standard ones of, uh, you know, people trying to stall spin and, and, uh, and do these other ones. I will actually, without writing any of my students out, I will, I'll change the question a little bit and and sort of put it into an issue that I had myself, um, you know, and, and this is one of those things that I learned where it's mm, just because you can doesn't mean you should. I, uh, <laughs> I was going down to Sun and Fun and a friend of mine had said, hey, I need help uh, transporting an airplane. And um, we need to deliver this airplane here. I need you to bring a second airplane to go with me so that you can then pick me back up and bring me back to Sun and Fun. So great. I can do that. I'm a pilot. It'll be great. Um, and he says, okay, I'm going to need you to transport a 182. So, well, I've never flown a 182, and but it's probably close enough to 172. Everything's fine, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. And uh, so we... I, I get up there and and this is where sort of the Swiss cheese starts lining up. I'm like, where's the checklist? Ah, there's no checklist for 182. You don't need that. Oh, you sure? Because everything I've I've seen says that you're supposed to have a checklist. Now nah, you'll be fine. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, I'm unfamiliar with the area. Unfamiliar the, with the airplane. Yeah. I'm familiar with the airplane. The GPS yeah. isn't working. Oh, but you've got a sectional. That's cool. And uh, so, yeah, so I, I decide for whatever reason that that's a, this, all of this is a good idea. Um, and we we get up and it takes off mostly like 172. That was fine. And um, we we get to where we need to go. And, and I come down for landing and I try to land it like a 172 and having as much 182 time as you have, I'm sure you're about to, you're very familiar with what I went through. I, I, I feel, I feel what's about to happen. Yep. Yeah. Plant city, Florida. And yeah. during sun and fun, while there's everybody and their mother standing there, you know, yeah. having their, their, their hoagies and, and their, their Cokes. And you bring you're flying, watching this 182 come in. Bam. Bounce once, bounce twice. Now oh, I no. was an instructor and oh, no. Oh, no. I told all oh, my no. students, I said, hey, oh, no. if you if bounce, you bounce it, go around. get out of there. <laughs> what did I do? I I was like, no, I'm better than this. I mean, oh, I'm, I'm super pilot oh, no. John. So, you know, oh, I do. God. I add a little bit of power. I stabilize it. I get it down finally. And I think I got the thing stopped in like the last 
it felt like the last hundred feet of that runway. Oh, I think God. everybody was standing there on the ramp going, well, oh, this guy's going to crash. Oh, and I God. get, yeah, well, and I get there and I went, this was the, just the absolute dumbest thing I've ever done. Oh just, gosh. Oh my goodness. And I'm white and reasonably shaking and, and the pilot I was with uh, in the other airplane is like, okay, cool. Well, now I'm going to need you to move this airplane to this airport. <laughs> and I'm like, I just nearly killed myself and you want me to get back in this thing? What? And, bro- and broke the airplane. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did not break the airplane. Thankfully, everything yeah, was yeah. cool. It, it all worked out. And he's like, oh yeah. When you're in a 182, when you go to land, you just got to put a bunch of nose up trim and you'll be fine. And I went, why didn't you tell me this before we, so, so the lesson there <laughs> as a, a student who should have had an instructor for this airplane, um, just because it looks like the airplane that you've been flying doesn't necessarily mean that it does all the things that the airplane you've been flying actually does. Yeah. And when the hairs start to stick up on the back of your neck yeah. and you go, boy, this is, this is bad. That's yeah. bad too. You need to listen to that little voice in your head telling oh. you, don't take off dummy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I had a, you, you, um, one of the stories that I wrote for you was, was me telling on myself for a similar kind of issue where I'm like, um, you know, this was in, uh, this was in a, you know, twin engine plane when I finally had my, my first real power failure. And I had done 200 simulated drills. Like I was, I had a little, I had a little, you know, multi-intensive training thing going on where people were coming from all over the country to do this multi-engine training. And I'd done dozens and dozens of applicants and, you know, and, um, and I was training them. And so we shut engines off and turned engines back on and we simulated shutting engines down. And, you know, we've done it hundreds of times. And on the day it finally happened, I'm with a client and we're like, we're, we're outside the final fix and it's, it's VMC. We're training. He's under the, I don't even know if he was under the hood. I don't think he was even under the hood. We're just, we're shooting this approach and we're coming in all of a sudden I can hear the grinding and the pounding of the the right engine coming apart and gosh darn it if i didn't reach down and grab that right mixture and just pull it all the way back and i there was no identify verify there was no fix there was no feather there was just boom and the second that that lever came to the stop i went and then i went oh i got the right engine well that's good i should probably feather it like literally it was that sort of surreal like you know as an instructor like you know like don't just randomly jump into a plane and go take off and go fly this thing mm-hmm. you know i i took off on a flight by myself in a 206 one time and literally the chief pilot came over and he's like you ever flown a 206 by yourself you know and it was that same kind of deal but i i knew what was going on and I, i'd had some dual time in a 206 so i knew like don't just chop the power and land it like a 172 like that nose is heavy like you know don't don't porpoise it, but yeah, no, sure enough on the day when it actually happened, I was, I did the wrong thing, you know? Well, and, and to take that question and flip it on its head, um, in other situations where there are emergencies going on, I feel like the communication skills and frankly, the crew resource management skills that we learn as instructors, uh, put us a step above everything else. I'll, I'll give you an example this is sort of a, a shiny gold star on, on, on my pocket here. Uh, I've had to shut an engine down in a jet once. 
Okay. And only once. And I hope it, I hope it doesn't happen again, but you know, it, it sort of proves that the training goes, you know, the, the way it's supposed to, we were taking a Lear to, um, I think it was Brownsville, Texas. And, uh, owner was on board and we were coming down, down through the thirties, I think. And we were sort of around San Antonio or so. And, and for those that don't know, Brownsville's in Southern Texas. Way down and, there. Yeah. Yeah. Long runway and, uh, controlled fire rescue, the whole deal. And we were getting an issue with the, I want to say the oil pressure indicator and it's spiking up and down back and forth. And of course we, myself and my first officer were there and, and I were communicating. And sometimes in those situations, when you're a little bit scared, just talking helps. And so that, I, I learned that as an instructor too. It's like, I'm a little bit frightened right now, but I'm just going to talk to the student. And that makes me forget about how scared I am. Um, and so him and I are talking about the the situation at hand. And I say, okay, well, let's try this. Let's see if it stabilizes. Nope. Okay. Now it's starting to get a little worse. And we run the checklist. And the checklist basically gives you sort of three doors to potentially open. And it says, okay, if the oil pressure is high, do this. If the oil pressure is low, do this. And there was another circumstance to do that. And what we found was, and, and I'm a little fuzzy on some of the details now, but we we didn't clearly fit in any of the three doors. Because it was fluctuating. Because it was fluctuating and it was, the, I think it had something to do with the oil, the, the oil temp as well. It was like, if it's, if it's, you know, low and high, do this. If it's high and low, do that. Um, and we were kind of reciprocal of one of them, but it didn't, we knew that the, it didn't fit, but we were trying to figure out which one does it fit the most with. And we called up ATC. We declared an emergency. We said, hey, this is what we're doing. And they said, well, do you want to land in San Antonio or, or divert or something like that? And we said, well, I've got probably another 15 minutes of checklist that I got to do before I land. Anyways, I'm about 20, 25 minutes from our destination. Long runway, medical services, fire. I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. You cool. know, there's that corporate pilot that's like, I'm going to make sure the passengers get where they need to go because that matters. Um, <laughs> doesn't for those wondering, um, nope. Nope, not <laughs> the slightest. and, uh, so, you know, I'm talking with my first officer and I, I remember distinctly cause we didn't, we didn't fit. And I said, I'm thinking that we need to follow down the path of shutting this engine down. And he goes, okay. And he was still a fairly new first officer. And I said, here's what I need you to do though, before we do this. I need to give you a, I need you to give me a compelling reason why we shouldn't. Cause I don't want to shut it down, but I think we need to tell me why I shouldn't do that. Boy, that's really interesting. Cause you need and, to take a minute to slow down anyway, rather than just running off through the checklists. Exactly. Sure. sure. So it's like, give me, give me validation. Give me a reason why I shouldn't yeah, yeah. do this because I'm pretty sure that we need to, but I really don't want to. Yeah. And we talked about it a little more and realistically he couldn't give me a reason not to. So I said, okay, click engines off. Awesome. Now in this moment, I learned another lesson. Um, and this is one of those things that I have brought back into instructing as well. So when we go into the SIM and we run single engine work, 
as you are aware, um, on a typewriter, it's all instrument. None mm -hmm. of it's VFR. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been trained to shoot a visual approach, single engine, in a jet? No. Nope. Now, granted, visual approach, a, a, a pilot may be saying to themselves, it's just a visual approach. You should be able to do a visual approach. No, yes, but it's the answer different. to that is yes. It's, it's different, yeah. It's different. So yeah. we were coming into Brownsville. We had the airplane configured. The engine was shut down. Everything was happy-go-lucky. And I told my first officer, I said, you know, besides the checklist, I don't care about anything else, but watch that rudder. Make sure that rudder is centered at all moments because I'm going to get distracted. And if I get distracted, the first thing that's going to go is the rudder. That was really smart of you. That was really smart. Well, and the ATC lady, here's the part that wasn't smart. She goes, um, do you want the ILS or do you want the visual? In my head, I picked the visual because, well, it's going to get me on the ground faster. Yeah, you want the ILS all day. All day long. Because all day long. Yeah, yeah. what I wasn't prepared for was I'd never done that before. I can shoot an ILS single engine with my eyes closed. Yeah, a visual is going to cause me to do things out of yep. order, yep. different than what I'm used to, and yep. there is a difference there. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I was glad that I asked him to do that because I'm shooting this visual. I'm a little bit tighter into the airport than I normally would be. I'm worried about getting the airplane on the ground, and that rudder started to go. And he he did exactly what I asked him to do. He goes, "Your rudder's starting to fluctuate." I went. Look down. Oh, okay. Thanks. And we got it on the ground. And in a single engine swept wing Lear at low altitude, you don't have any room for that rudder to go. Yeah. Exactly. Good for you. Good. So, for you. Yeah, and, cool. and the, the best compliment I've ever gotten in my flying career, we had three, three passengers on board and uh, we had notified them. We said, Hey, this is what's going on. I'm not worried. You shouldn't be worried. And Oh, by the way, when we land, if you see a bunch of flashing lights and some cool fire trucks, don't worry about it. It's it, it's going to be fine. Just I need you not to, you know, don't panic. And uh, so we got on the ground and, and fire rescue did exactly what they were supposed to do. They asked us if we were OK. We said yes. They said, well, we're going to follow you to the FBO anyways. So we got this uh, this cool fire truck escort all the way to the FBO and uh, shook their hand. And, and, away and we went. ultimately, was it something more than a sensor? Was it truly an issue? So, so here's the thing. Um, we had maintenance come out and, uh, the first day after we landed and got the passengers on their way, uh, maintenance looked at it and they, they said, well, if it were something we would see some sort of fluids coming out, we'd see pooling, we'd see this, that the next thing. They didn't see that. They said, but we don't have time today to take a look at it. We'll take a look at it tomorrow. Well, when they came back the next day, there was oil all below the engine. Awesome. As it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause here I was awesome. stressing out about the fact that I'm like, okay, if we don't fit into this checklist, if I go off the rails, I'm and not following it it. for an indication. Yeah, sure. I might not be doing the proper procedure anymore because we'll well, yeah. why'd you shut the engine down? Well, the checklist told me to do it. Did it. Right. Um, right. And uh, as it turned out, the, there was a, a, a bearing that broke. And it was squirting engine into the combustion chamber or squirting oil into the combustion chamber. And they estimated that we had less than a minute left of operation before that engine started to grind itself apart. So not only did we have a successful outcome, but we had a, uh, a engine that was savable as well. And That's fantastic. Yeah. Good yeah. job. But good job. 
those are the kinds of things where from a, you know, what kind of experience do you draw from as an instructor? Well, it's, you know, it's rationalizing some of these things that like, how do I deal with this? How yeah. do I utilize another person in the cockpit? Cause you can utilize your students for those same types of events. If you've got an engine failure yeah. in 172, you better be talking to your student. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, figuring out how to do that and, and something as simple as even as we mentioned before, compartmentalizing that fear it's big i mean you can do you you figure that out during training but if i think instructors have a a better capacity to understand what that feels mm-hmm. like than somebody mm-hmm. who who didn't mm-hmm. go through that path i had an instructor i was just talking to yesterday it's like hey i just got an interview at an airline i really need to know more about crm and multi-pilot crews and I was like, oh, right, that's a skill that I have now because I've been doing that. Like, I just I love how this, the you know, the good pilots always learning. Right. I love how we, we keep building these skills so that we do more and more and more. And, and yeah, it's a uh, that learning curve is cool. I, I like that about us. Yeah, I mean, so what was the drive for you? I mean, you, you got your certificate, you talked about wanting to, to kind of do more and more and more. And eventually that led you to, to CFI. Did you see that as an option when you first started flying? No, no, I, I was step-by-step the whole way. And it was only, it was only sort of, sort of, as I'd get one rating that I'm like, well, it looks like I'm going to have to get the next. And by the time I'd gotten my CFI, I'm like, well, I'm going to end up with my ATP at some point, but I'm definitely never wearing a pilot uniform. Like did not imagine myself in a 121 dark blue suit. Like it never, never crossed my mind. And then gosh, it wasn't, it wasn't until like I was flying corporate. Now I'm in the uniform. They're like, well, I guess I need to buy the pilot luggage. And, you know, so here I am loaded up with luggage work. I'm like, this is, this is actually kind of sweet. You know, when I got the job interview call to fly the seven, six, I was like, I guess I'm going to go fly heavies internationally. Like, okay, here we go. And so, and it was a weird thing too, because I have such an odd career path that when I was turning down corporate jobs, because I didn't want to be away, like I was trying to figure out like, how do we make relationships work and family work with this job? And, and I was trying to figure that out. And people were like, you just wasted all your money. Like, really? Like, you're not going to go be an airline pilot? Like, you know, eight and six is too much. Really? What? And I was like, no, actually, I want to go be able to have adventures and travel around and like spend time with my friends. And, you know, and that was more important to me than the salary and the job progression and the, you know, the mucho money of going to the airlines. And, and so none of that was tempting, but the skills, like the learning, the adventure, like, let's go figure this out. Let's go do this thing is still there. And so that part was always exciting. So I was always excited about learning more, but it was never about progression. It was never about money. And honestly, the examiner piece was like, we, we lost a couple examiners in Maine. And I was like, well, I, I have the qualifications. Like, I don't know why they would pick me because I'm so much younger than everybody else out there. But, you know, we went through piles and piles and piles of, of applications. And when my number came up, I'm like, well, Yes, if chosen, I will serve. And then, okay, here we go. And um, yeah, so it's uh, it's just a learning process, right? And you know, even with this, I just did the the AOPA FERC, and I I love it. It's so well done, and I, I learned so much out of it. And I'm so glad I did it. And I'm like, wow, I you know, I, I could have renewed because I'm an examiner and gone to one of my examiner buddies, and he could have signed me off. And you know, here we go because I, I qualify. 
but I really loved putting the hours in on that thing and learning the new skills and picking the elective modules to go learn more about, you know, all sorts of stuff. So yeah, no, learning's fun. Learning's fun. How I like did that it about prepare us. you for the airlines or for the, your, your jet type ratings? Yeah, I think it, I think it's the same thing that you said. We learning how to learn, you know, cause I I've taught for most of my life. So I taught, um, you know, I taught, gosh, starting in college, I was teaching. Um, I taught, I, te- I was a teacher's aide for geology. And then I taught fencing when I was in college. Yeah. Right. Tell me you fence and, on the boat. Like I, no, it, no fencing it, on the boat, no fencing on the boat. Yeah. yeah no fencing. But, uh, but I was, I was fully into fencing. And then, you know, I lived in Japan and I did kendo for a while and Japanese chess and I, you know, learning stuff. And then when I got back to Europe, cause I lived in Europe for a bunch of years, then I was teaching, I was teaching guitar and I was teaching French to Japanese people. And I was always sort of teaching something. Right. And so, um, you know, then when I started flying, I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to have to, you know, start teaching this too. And actually my newest thing is I'm about to go get my scuba diving instructor certification so that I can teach scuba diving, you know? So it's just like, you know, just keep, keep learning stuff. And, and I, I guess the way that it serves is exactly like you said, when you learn how to learn and you learn how your own brain works and how you learn stuff, then, you know, your inner monkey is just excited to go climb that mountain because you know how to sort of scramble up that hill and it's, it's fun to get, you know, faced with a big challenge again. Like never would I have imagined myself flying a 400,000 pound airplane. Never, never, never. Mm-hmm. Right. But when the challenge came up, I'm like, yeah, let's do this. And then of course now you're in, you know, now you're, you know, here you are coming up to check ride and you're like, this is, this is going to be fine. This is going to be okay. I can do this now, you know? So, but of course the first time you step into that sim, you're like shiny, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I, one of these days, what I, what I have not learned is I stress myself out during training. Like you wouldn't believe it, Really? It, I see, I see these pilots that go in and, and, oh, it's just another check ride, just another airplane. It'll be fine. And, and I don't believe that I'm going to pass until that, oh, you no. know, that piece of paper is in my hand. So here oh, I am no. still, you know, years later, kind of the guy cowering in the corner going, I think I'm oh, going to no. do it. Oh no. On your fourth type ride. Yeah. I think that's the thing. So if, if there's, you know, something we could pass along that never goes away. Time building never goes away. Like that next thing never goes away. Like I have stuff that I need to build time for right now. Like I need more seaplane hours to examine in seaplanes. So I need to go build seaplane time and I'm building tailwheel time. And I, I'd like to build more jet time and turboprop like that. You know, they're all, there's always something else you're time building for. It's not like you magically reach 1500 and everything goes away. Yeah. You know, you know, you're well, on your fourth type rating and you still don't think you're going to pass. So you've got the paper in your hand, like, and you're, you're incredibly competent. You're super smart. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things. I, I, I know people say like, oh yeah, eventually it goes away. And I'm, I'm waiting for that day that it does, um, you know, and, and it's interesting. I, as far as. I still think I like the way you said it because I think time building gets its own sort of negative connotation. And and I've, I've said this for years. Um, you know, it's, it's something that is, yes, of course, it's something that we all do. It's something that we all have to do, but time building, you could just as, as realistically call it experience building or knowledge building or, you know, any of these other things, 
that people would go, oh yeah, I did learn a lot of time. I did learn a lot while I was instructing instead of calling, you know, instructors who want to move on to something else, time builders. Oh, I learned a lot as a flight instructor. Maybe they're knowledge builders. Maybe they're experience builders. You know, as we get into sort of semantics in our culture all the time, this is one of those things where it's like, there is something to somebody doing this to gain the experience to be better. Mm-hmm. Forget what they're doing it for. Forget whether they're going mm-hmm. to go to an, another, mm-hmm. you know, part of our profession or or if they're going onto a different airplane, but they are still getting something of value. They're bettering themselves while they do it. And that's, yeah. you know, when it comes to instructors who are sort of transitory, and of course, you know, I, I was one of them. It's one thing to know that you're only going to be in the profession for a short period of time. It's another thing to know that you're going to be there for a short period of time and make as big of a difference as you can positively while you do it because or or pull out the experience for yourself so that you learn these pieces that you know rather than just sort of blowing through and you know starting the starting the plane as quickly as you can to build time Mm -hmm. you know you're you're going for your fourth type rating and you're already starting to study systems on this on the gulf stream you know i have three POHs to study in the next three weeks, you know, for three different airplanes that I'm going to be in. Like I've got, I've got all kinds of stuff that I still have to actively study, even though I'm at this quote point of arrival, you know, I'm still building time to do stuff. I'm still writing plans of action for new rides that I want to be qualified to give, you know, it's always the, the learning never goes away. Well, and, and, uh, you know, I feel like we could probably sit here and, and talk all night Um, But as we start to kind of wind things down a little bit, you know, one of the best pieces of advice that I was given, and I had the privilege to do, um, for those that haven't seen it, um, what I called the 10 question challenge. And I did this for, I think it was about a year and a half. And I was talking to instructors and pilots who, you know, I thought had made it. And uh, it was an honor for me because the the last one that I did was Rod Machado. So it it all sort of having a conversation with Rod Machado. Um, and, and forgive me for not remembering exactly which one of these individuals said these words, but he said the thing, oh, it was Jim Pittman. Jim Pittman told me this. He goes, the thing that, uh, he struggled with initially and has really learned the lesson and tried to pass on is that we are a profession of goalposts. Similar to, you know, using that in the same way of your, your time building, you know, it's, it's, oh, I got to hurry up and get my instrument. Oh, I got to hurry up and get my commercial. Oh, I got to get 1500 hours. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to do that. And we get so caught up in the notion of, I got to go through this goalpost. And before you even have a chance to do your celebratory dance, you're already thinking about where that next goalpost is. Totally true. And, you know, nobody stops to sit there and go, you know what? I just earned my private pilot certificate. Do you know the single digit percentages of human beings on this planet that are capable of flying an airplane. You just did something that a extremely small fraction of people are, are, are into capable of have done. And we don't look at it that way. We go, Oh, cool. I got my private. I'm going to go get my instrument now. Well, hang on a second. You, you've accomplished this gigantic thing. Make sure you take a moment to take a breath and we can use that in life. Oh, you just got married. Cool. Take a moment to celebrate that. Oh, I just bought my first house. Take a moment. Cause as society, we just move so fast that nothing is celebrated to a point where we're satisfied. 
Oh, we totally. And that's something totally. that I've really tried to kind of bring into my own my own life after I heard him say it because I said you're absolutely right. You know, we 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 have a celebratory dinner. Like I would go out to eat or something after my check ride and and enjoy myself for like one night before going back into the grind and doing it all over again. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And I'll and I'll leave you with with this story, which is which is similar to what you said about that goalpost. I I for a very brief stint was teaching at this um this one school and they asked me to do a discovery flight and had a sixteen year old coming with his mom for his birthday. And I said to her, you know, if you can you can bring a passport, um you know, uh, I can, I can sign this off as a lesson and I'll give him a logbook. And so he arrives there and he's got his phone and he's Snapchatting everything. And I took him aside for just a second. We're sitting in the cockpit of this 172 and, and, uh, and I said, you know, you're about to fly this thing. You're going to have your hands on those controls. And I get that you want to take pictures and stuff and I can take some pictures for you, but you're about to fly and you're going to need those hands and pay attention. And he's like, okay. You know, so here this, you know, 16 year old, like on a weekend, like escape from high school birthday present, puts his phone away. We pre-flight, you know, we finish the, finish our checklist. We get the airplane started, we get in the air and it's like, you can see the combination of wonder and terror as he leaves the earth. And, you know, so now he's got his hands on the controls and he's flying around, he's doing turns and stuff. And, and he's so excited. And we come back in and, um, you know, and I, I help him with the landing. He does a little bit of the landing himself. And, you know, we've set the airplane back down and we've turned it off. And he's like, that's the coolest thing I've ever done. And so as we walk back into the FBO, I say to his mom, you know, if you're up for an extra 20 minutes of ground time, we'll get on IACRA and I'll have them print out a student. I have them make a student pilot certificate, mail him a plastic student pilot certificate. I'm like, I look at him up. Like, you want that? He's like, I want that. And then I said, so, okay, so here's the deal. So you're going to go back to school on Monday. Don't tell everybody that you just flew an airplane. Like, let them find out, like, just be cool. Like don't walk in and be like, I'm a pilot. Right. And so as we're leaving, as, as, as he, you know, we finished the ACR paperwork and he's leaving with his mom and he looks up to his mom. He's like, mom, I'm a pilot. So I think, we see that aspiration, that big, golden, beautiful, like we can do this thing. And that you're right, that goalpost keeps moving and we keep chasing it. And we can either be happy where we are here and be excited about like, oh my gosh, I just landed on water. or Oh my gosh, I just landed a heavy in Europe or, you know, whatever it is. Or we can keep looking at some goalpost out there for like, when I get to 1500, it's going to be amazing. And, mm -hmm. you know, when I get, when I get my first type rating, it's going to be amazing. Like you're on your fourth type rating and you're still like, I still have so much tension around, you know, it's like, just, just love the ride. It's like, you know, love the learning. So yeah, I think that's good advice. Thanks, Jim Pittman. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and just an aside for, uh, to, to finish this off truly, you know, it's it's true. The the age old joke of how do you know there's a pilot in the room? He'll tell, tell you. you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Randall, thank you so much. It's it's always fun to talk to you. It's always fun to have these conversations. You never know where they're going to go, and uh, and I've truly enjoyed it. So thank you. Thanks so much. so much. Thanks for all you're doing for Naffy and all you're doing instructing. You're you're making a big difference nationally, and we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.